Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is August 17th, 2022, and it is National Thrift Shop Day. So dust off that copy of Macklemore's Only Hit and uh, go check out some of the deals at your local Salvation Army and Goodwill. Uh, but before you do that, you're going to want to tune in for the Gestalt IT Rundown because we have a lot of great news that's headed your way. And I promise you, none of this has been thrifted. This is all fresh, hot off the presses. Joining me again is my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Tom. I'm going to pop some flash. So turning to the news of the week, Tom, uh, we covered the results of the NIST competition for a post-quantum cryptography solution last month on the rundown. In addition to the four finalists, there were four additional solutions picked for further testing. But as of today, that's three. Because uh, one of them, the super singular isogeny key encapsulation, or psych algorithm, has been broken. Psych. Uh, not only was psych unable to protect against potential quantum attacks, but the math needed to invalidate it was done on a regular PC in about an hour. Uh, the authors are disappointed. Uh, as are basically everybody else, uh, but mentioned that the connections between the attack vector and their proposal were unexpected and need to be investigated. Tom, uh, does this add up to you? Actually, it does. But in the in the immortal words of, of well, me, I was told there would be no math. And honestly, if you go look through the uh, the article that we linked for this, uh, there actually is a lot of math. Uh, the the um, math algorithm that was used to actually invalidate this was developed back in the late 90s and it was published in a paper a uh, little over a decade ago uh, but the short and sweet thing is um, basically we, we talked about this that you're using an elliptical curve to kind of calculate products that would force a quantum computer to do this in series as opposed to being able to do it in parallel which is why it can invalidate RSA well, what happened was, is that the people who created this math paper were able to apply like a series two curve to a series one problem. So that superset allowed them to essentially bust the curve apart in about an hour, um, which is effectively what quantum computing would do for these giant prime number factoring problems. Now, the other thing that was kind of interesting in the article was that Syke was only using a one pass key system. Um, if anyone familiar with any kind of encoding or technology knows that doing a single pass is the quick and dirty method, doing multiple passes allows you to be more sure of the result, but it reduces speed. And that's part of the problem is that a lot of these people are trying to create these super fast encryption algorithms to be able to do a lot of this stuff at speed. Think like SSL TLS encryption, as opposed to like uh, I don't know, like full disk encryption, wherever you try to encrypt your Mac's drive with File Vault, and it takes minutes to accomplish. And that is where we're going to be seeing the next developments. Because remember, these this isn't the finalists. The finalists have been basically proven that they're not going to be able to be destroyed. These were the four backups that were going to warrant more study. And one of the that backup solutions that was picked back in February, Rainbow, was actually already cracked by IBM. This is what we want. This is why we publish these algorithms, because we want people to attack them and find the weak points before they're put into place or before the NSA can convince people to put them in place. So I'm actually happy that this happened. And it looks like the authors of Psych are going back to try to maybe fix these problems and maybe resubmit it for future consideration. But for now, Psych. It's not going to happen. 
All right, Stephen, we're going to turn a little bit to virtualization because Verge.io, the company formerly known as Yottabyte, announced a new piece of virtual hardware to add to their virtual data center offerings this week. They now offer virtual GPUs for use in composable compute infrastructure and HCI. Now, why would they want to do something like that? Well, it turns out that there are increasing needs in research, especially around machine learning, AI, and a lot of complex scientific algorithmic calculations. This really spurred Verge.io to begin offering this service to their customers. Um, but Stephen, since you're someone who's very up on HCI and composable infrastructure, is this something that's going to add power to their offerings for their customers? Or are their customers going to be like, yeah, we don't really need this? Yeah, I think the story here is not that Verge.io added GPU support, but that Verge.io exists. Uh, this is a company who a lot of people just haven't heard of. But uh, frankly, I'm actually impressed by these guys technologically. So essentially what we've got here is, as you mentioned, the, the remains of a storage virtualization startup from a decade ago. That, uh, and, and, and it was a good product. Uh, it, was, it was developed well. Uh, Stephen's law is never trust any storage product that doesn't have at least six years of development into it. This has many years of development into it. So it's a pretty good storage layer. And essentially what happened was after they realized that a storage virtualization product wasn't going to go anywhere, the team uh, tore it down and said, well, you know, this is a great base for uh, hyperconvergence. If you think about it, uh, think of your favorite hyperconvergence solution, whether it's uh, you know scale computing or Nutanix or something built on uh, VMware. All of them have a, a, comp, a, a competent storage layer at the base, and that's what's important in order to make a scalable virtualized uh, server in a box or data center in a box. Well, that's what Verge.io has. And so uh, when I talked to them earlier this month, uh, my advice to them was basically don't lean out of the Yottabyte connection, lean into it. This is a good product. It was it was well developed, and they've built a really interesting virtual data center product on top of it. Now, is it the next uh, big thing? Is it going to revolutionize everything? No, but is it a very valuable, useful solution that allows you to run a bunch of virtual machines in a hyperconverged way on all sorts of hardware from the very low end to honestly pretty solid? Now that they've got GPU and networking support, yeah, it's a pretty good product. And so if you're thinking, uh, hey, I've got a whole bunch of uh, manufacturing uh, that needs to have a data center in a box or uh, retail or you know, just different uh, environments like that where you need to be able to deploy a uh, virtual data center that has uh, scalability, that has the ability as now to include a GPU if needed, that can synchronize data from site to site, well, I think Verge.io is worth a look. So... To me, I think that's the real benefit of uh, this announcement. Tom, uh, we've talked about Broadcom and the Tomahawk chips uh, for a long time. Uh, many people aren't aware, but the Tomahawk is basically the uh, Intel x86 of switching. Uh, Broadcom has released a new Tomahawk data center switch platform, and it's pretty spiffy. Uh, the fifth generation uh, boasts a throughput of 51.2 terabits per second. And the lineup can run 64 800 gigabit ports or 256 200 gigabit ports. The capacity of this switch puts it on par with the latest announcements from NVIDIA, uh, which also announced a switch of similar speed at GTC this year. 
The switch is aimed at cloud and hyperscale networking companies to help drive adoption of those faster port speeds. But frankly, this thing's going to be everywhere, I think. Uh, what do you think, Tom? So I love the fact that we're already talking about, you know, mid terabits per second, dozens of terabits. I remember when the first terabit per second uh, throughput switch came out from Barefoot Networks with Tofino, and like, I couldn't imagine how fast that could be. And so now what we're seeing is, you know, 50-ish between uh, NVIDIA, by the way, that's the Mellanox part of NVIDIA. It's not, they're not running a switch on GPUs. Although now that you mention it, that might not be a bad idea. Um, but Broadcom, like you said, um, they're kind of the dealer for all companies that are, are doing a lot of really fast stuff. So if you're not making your own silicon, you're buying it from Broadcom. And so if you look under the hood of a lot of data center switching platforms, there's a Tomahawk sitting in there. Um, things that are interesting to me in the reports that came out, uh, Broadcom and a lot of industry analysts are talking about the fact that they're trying to drive adoption of these faster port speeds and that 200 gigabit per second port speeds are finally starting to get rolling along. But when you look at what's going on here, like you're talking about 800 gigabit per second ports. One of the challenges that Broadcom is having is the CERDES, the serialization, deserialization interfaces on these uh, systems are still 100 gigabit per second, which means if you want that port to run at 800, you actually have to get like an octo SFP, which is eight ports that are collapsed into one. So I think that this is going to be the last revision of switching that we see from Broadcom and a lot of other manufacturers for that matter that are using the 100 gigabit CERDES. They're actually going to have to rev those to a new platform. And I think this is where we're going to start getting into some interesting problems is because when you rev that CERDES to push more data through the individual ports, you're going to start generating a lot more heat. And so um, we've talked about this at Tech Field Day on a number of occasions. Andy Bechtelsheim of Arista brought up the fact that you're going to see an upper limit for what these switches are going to be capable of doing, not because of anything like Moore's Law, but because the amount of heat that they're going to generate is going to be too much for the optics to handle. And that's where things like silicon photonics are going to start coming in. So I would expect that before we hit 100 terabits per second on a switch uh, fabric or a switch throughput like Tomahawk, I think we're going to see silicon photonics kind of take over to reduce the electrical um, hungry, the, the hungry electrical problems, but also to uh, sink a little bit more of that heat because otherwise we're going to turn our data centers into saunas. And I don't think that that's going to be something that anybody really wants to deal with. Yeah. Um, Steven, uh, interesting story that came out regarding uh, broadband initiatives. Um, everyone's favorite FCC under the, uh, the, watchful eye of Ch uh, Chair Jessica Rosenworcel, decided that Starlink isn't going to be getting a big check after all, because an announcement this week from the federal regulator said that the tentative agreement that was in place to award $885 million under the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund grant, which was awarded back in 2020, was being reversed. Now, they're not just picking on Elon because they also rejected a proposal from LTT LTD Broadband along those same lines. What lines were those, you might ask? They believe that Starlink and LTD are unable to provide the promised service to the proposed census blocks, which was the way that the grant was awarded, uh, meaning it was targeting very specific areas like rural broadband. 
also of issue was the little fact that the FCC didn't think that we should be giving almost $900 million to a company that charges $600 for you to get the dish to be able to use their system. There are also reports that the UCLA speed tests that had been done on Starlink have slowly been going down as more people have been jumping onto the service, and they've gone under the proposed minimums for the broadband, which is about 20 megabits per second. Stephen, do you think this is going to cause an issue for Elon Musk's orbital modem factory? Well, first off, let me just say that I am not a uh, Musk hater or a Starlink hater or anything like that. In fact, I put my name in to get a Starlink dish because even though I live in a place that has the availability of fiber, it's not available at my house. So I'm sensitive to some of the nature of this competition. So from my understanding, what happened here was that the, uh, the broadband competition uh, divided up uh, basically the whole country in the U.S. into little tiny blocks based on uh, and, and then decided how much broadband availability there were there. And, and so, for example, in my case, um, the people who live literally, uh, you know, 100 meters from me across a, a major street can get 100 or gigabit fiber. But me, uh, because of the nature of the history of the thing and the fact that there's no wires running under the street and all that kind of stuff, me, I can't get that. I can only get a 100 megabit cable modem at best. And so, you know, I do have some availability, but it's kind of the same thing all around the country. There are little islands of uh, poor connectivity. There was a great story about somebody in Seattle who uh, was unable to get broadband in down in like Seattle, like in, in a residential neighborhood of like one of the connectedest, you know, most connected cities in the U.S. Um, the the idea was that uh, things like LTE based or satellite based broadband could maybe bring broadband to those islands as well as rural areas. Now, let me just jump in on the rural areas thing, too, since I've lived in uh, some pretty rural areas in Ohio as well. And broadband access is not good. Uh, I mean, heck, we didn't even have 3G, let alone uh, broadband where I lived. And so for that, it's very important that we provide some kind of uh, broadband capability there, whether it is LTE or satellite or whatever. So all of this made a lot of sense. The problem is that the way that the auction was set up, uh, companies could kind of pick and choose what they wanted to attack. And unsurprisingly, some of these companies said, yeah, we'll provide broadband in all of these little pockets and we won't worry too much about the affordability or the sustainability of the whole thing um, you know, with a whole bunch of people on the same LTE tower or the same satellite or whatever, because uh, technically the speeds are there. Well, the speeds aren't there. And uh, as I said, I'm uh, very impressed with Starlink. Uh, I don't love what they're doing to the night sky, but I do love what they're doing to bringing broadband uh, all around the world. And uh, frankly, uh, right now with the V1 Starlink, uh, we're starting to hit the, the, the problem of popularity. The thing is getting a lot of users and the more users it gets, the more it slows down because right now it's basically a single bounce off the satellite back to earth. And that's what it can provide. In the future, they're going to have higher bandwidth satellites. They're going to have satellite-to-satellite, laser-based interconnects, and so on that should dramatically increase bandwidth. But we ain't there yet. And so I don't blame the FCC from taking a look at this and saying, hey, wait a second. This dish costs $600. It doesn't provide the speeds that we anticipated. And it's kind of picking and choosing coverage areas in order to get the grants. So I'm not surprised that they're pushing back on this, but frankly, I don't see this as a long-term hit on Starlink so much as a 
accurate reflection of the current state of the technology. Tom, uh, Cisco is the latest victim of a hacking crew bent on gaining access to high-profile targets. Back in May of this year, uh, a reported member of the Lapsus hacking team managed to compromise a Cisco employee's Google account, uh, I guess their personal account, and found that they could uh, you find the employee's credentials there in the browser and use that to access uh, Cisco's network. The bad actor in question managed to convince the employee to accept a multi-factor authentication push notification sent by the attacker that allowed them to get into Cisco's corporate VPN. The attack is using some of the vulnerable hacking techniques uh, that we've all seen applied against many companies lately, and it seems to be a calling card of this, of this group. Tom, uh, how bad is this for Cisco or for the industry? So I think it's really interesting that Cisco uh, came out and, and divulged that this happened. Now, granted, it was about three months ago, but if anybody's ever done an incident response in a, in a large company, you know that three months is practically overnight. Um, things that stand out to me, one, the fact that it was Lapsus or at least someone associated with it, like Lapsus didn't come out and take credit for this. And if you've been following them in the news, you know that credit is what they're after. They, they are an old school hacking team, even though according to most reports, the people who are on in Lapsus are not old enough to be old school. They're all a bunch of teenagers. Um, adolescence, I believe is the, is the term that keeps getting applied to them. But more importantly, this is how they operate. They do not use um, sophisticated tools. They do not use all of these kinds of crazy, um, you know, systems to like, you know, like the, the DLL injection issue with SolarWinds, like Fancy Bear or the APT crews. They're just good old fashioned social engineers. And that's what happened here is they guessed this uh, Cisco employee's personal Google password. They had all of their Cisco credentials synced in Chrome so that it would sync to all of their other devices when they needed to get in. And then whenever they were able to brute force those, they started doing social engineering on the employee to get the two-factor codes. You know, two-factor, that thing that we tell everybody to enable, the thing that Cisco owns with Cisco Duo. So I think that we've we've reached a point where we need to make sure that people understand that, you know, there are certain things you should never do. You know, don't read off the numbers for a gift card that your boss told you to go buy from Office Max. Uh, don't tell anybody your two-factor code. Better yet, don't use SMS if you can get away with it. Use an app and keep that app to yourself. Only type in the information when you trust that you've done it. And I mean, let's be fair. Anybody listening to the rundown probably thinks that this is elementary school 101. There are a lot of people who haven't even started school yet when it comes to these kinds of security things. I'm glad that Cisco disclosed it. I'm glad that they're kind of putting it out there in the open so that people can kind of understand that these things still do happen. So if Eddie Vedder calls you from accounting and tells you to read the numbers off the bottom of the modem, don't do that. They'll hack your Gibson. But more importantly, we need to know when this happens, because when companies like Cisco and Microsoft and NVIDIA get hacked by these crews from Lapsus or whoever it happens to be later, we need to understand where those vectors are coming from. Because those are the kinds of things that we need to plug the holes in. The best firewall in the world will not prevent you from having an insider reading out information that they shouldn't be reading out. So it's as much an education problem as it is anything else. And we've been saying that for years, but we're going to keep on saying it right up until the point where we don't have to anymore. 
All right, Stephen, we got one story we wanted to take a closer look at, and it's uh, one that's near and dear to your heart because Flash Memory Summit actually happened last week, but we didn't want to let it get away without having our very own favorite storage expert comment on some of the announcements there. There was a lot of talk around CXL, the new interconnect system. Uh, there was also that ever-present discussion of some of the impending issues that happened with Intel Optane, and if you want to learn more about that, you should absolutely check out Stephen's coverage on the Gestalt IT Checksum on our website. Oh, and Samsung had a 128 terabyte SSD that they showed off. Yeah, I got to get me one of those. Um, Steven, what were your big takeaways from Flash Memory Summit? Yeah, I'm glad that y'all held this for me. I was unavailable to, uh, for the rundown last week due to a personal issue, but I'm glad that I can join you this week and talk about Flash Memory Summit. So first off, for our audience, um, it, you know, Flash Memory Summit may sound a little nerdy. And you know what? It is. Uh, this is an organization, a, uh, an event focused on the storage industry and not focused on storage buyers as much as the industry itself. This is one of the nerdiest, awesomest events out there because basically every company in the storage industry that's interested in any kind of solid state anything, which is, hint, the entire industry at this point, is going to be at Flash Memory Summit. And they're all checking out each other's stuff. There's all the, you know, all the presses there. Uh, you know, I want to give shout out to my friends, Chris Malor and uh, Patrick Kennedy, who uh, we've been talking to about uh, FMS announcements. Uh, thank you guys for being there, for covering it. Um, it was a great event. Um, and, and as you said, the news at this event was primarily centered around CXL. Now, obviously, Optane's um, sort of cancellation, check out my checksum episode for more on that, is uh, looming over everything. And apparently it was a topic of discussion. Certainly it was a topic of discussion among the people that I know who were there. And, um, you know, the, the consensus is, okay, let's move on. You know, as I said in my checksum episode, Optane is still here. It's still viable. It's still great with Ice Lake. But uh, next generation, um, we're looking at CXL. And there's a bunch of really cool things that were shown at Flash Memory Summit. Let me take the easiest and frankly, least impressive things there, which are unfortunately actually super impressive. So let's start with uh, SSD and NAND flash. So a bunch of companies came out with 200 plus layer flash. Uh, I think that uh, we, we saw quite a few announcements, uh, you know, Micron uh, kind of scooped the industry. Uh, we saw SK Hynix there with theirs. Uh, we saw a bunch of uh, flash uh, storage devices, uh, including uh, Kyosha, which has XL flash, which is basically just SLC. Uh, so it's really high performance, high endurance flash uh, that could theoretically be used to replace Optane in the, in the, in the chain. Uh, you know, we saw a bunch of really high capacity drives from companies like Solidime. And as you mentioned, Samsung with their 128 terabyte uh, drive that has sort of a folding kind of thing. So it packs in a lot of a lot of storage. Um, it's cool stuff. Um, who doesn't want 128 terabyte uh, SSD? But frankly, that's more uh, cool product stuff. But I think that that sort of looking forward, the coolest thing was what happens next. And what happens next is CXL. So our friends over at Memverge, uh, who you will remember, got a lot of flack when the Optane announcement came out because everybody's like, oh, well, Memverge is all about Optane. Guess what? They're not. Memverge is all about memory. 
And CXL is all about memory as well. And Memverge sponsored an entire day of presentations and panel sessions focused entirely on CXL. I don't know if Optane came up except in the Q&A portion. Essentially, what Memverge is doing with CXL is the same thing they were going to do with Optane and the same thing they can do with uh, in-server memory or memory in the cloud. They can do snapshots, they can virtualize it, they can move it around, they can do all sorts of cool stuff with lots and lots of memory. Now, Optane was great because it offered us lots and lots of memory. But again, CXL, the whole point of CXL is that you can have sort of a second tier of DRAM or other memory that's accessed over a PCI Express channel. And that PCIe can either be inside the device, which is something that we actually saw in practice actually working at FMS, or it could be outside the chassis. And that is exciting. Another thing that we got to see at Flash Memory Summit this year was a CXL 2.0 switch. Now, remember, we're still in the first generation of CXL. We're still basically, hey, check it out. We've got some DRAM on the other end of this PCIe link. But CXL 2.0 adds switching. And switching is amazing because essentially what that means is you could have a whole chassis full of DRAM with PCI Express links that all runs into your server. So your server can have all the memory it can eat. Not only that, but that memory can be reallocated dynamically thanks to companies like Memberge and Liquid that are working on technologies that would allow you to do that. The other thing that we saw at FMS, which is very, very important and very cool, is CXL 3.0. That was announced just before FMS, and everybody is buzzing about it. What 3.0 adds is a couple of cool twists. So as I mentioned, 2.0 has switching. 3.0 has multi-level switching. So the whole leaf spine architecture that you'd find in a network, except it's all PCI Express, it's all high performance. And this enables basically rack scale or even data center scale servers, disaggregated servers to be built around these CXL 3.0 switches. The other thing it allows is much more dynamic access. So you can have direct memory access with peer-to-peer -peer controls. So multiple servers could use the same memory at the same time. This is totally revolutionary. And it is promising to really change everything, the shape of servers in the data center. It also changes the expectations from those servers because of course, if, if you can expand a server outside the chassis, then that means that you don't necessarily need to put so much emphasis on tons of cores on the same processor, uh, tons of processors on the same motherboard. All that stuff kind of goes out the window and we can have much more, much smaller building blocks that can all be combined together into a bigger CXL server. Anyway, that's my excitement about Flash Memory Summit. Uh, that's my excitement about CXL. And frankly, as you can see, um, even though Optane isn't here anymore, a lot of this stuff doesn't really need Optane to go forward. And so we're really excited to see where companies like Memberge go in this CXL world. And I think you're absolutely right. And we've seen a lot of stories about CXL in the last six months, but not directly about CXL, but more about competitors to CXL that are either kind of being folded into the standard or kind of ceding their property to it. And I think that the value there is that by having one standardized platform that everybody is building towards and providing for, that we're going to stop these architecture discussions and really start enabling that to go faster, to be better. And, and on a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it because I'm a networking guy at heart, but like it's Ethernet. 
like like you know as bob metcalf is infamous for saying i don't know what the future of the network is going to look like but we're going to call it ethernet and that has allowed people to build systems that are fast survivable and flexible even though 800 gigabit ethernet doesn't look anything like 10 megabit ethernet but what's important is is that by building on that one specific infrastructure you can do things like have a you know leaf spine clow architecture CXL switch that will allow you to basically build a data center sized server or a group of composable infrastructure that you can then allocate. And I think that that's where we're going to start seeing real value coming into play for large providers. I no longer have to buy a rack full of one U or two U servers and then figure out how to divvy it all up. I can literally buy a rack of servers that are dedicated for GPU or what have you and use CXL to interconnect them all together. And learning from the lessons that the networking world has been learning from for several years that we were getting rid of this old three-stage architecture and moving to a two-stage architecture to reduce latency and provide more survivability and availability, we're going to see more and more opportunity to have these kind of monster machines or have these systems that are dedicated to doing massive AI research because now we can interconnect them at the speeds that they need to as opposed to relying on slower interconnects or protocol heavy implementations. So I'm really excited to hear that all of this stuff is you know being built on CXL. And like you said, it's funny that everybody shows up with all the news that's going on and the stalwarts of the anti-CXL league suddenly have changed the banners and they're like, you know what? CXL is cool and here's some stuff we're building on to, to make it work better. So I'm hopeful for the future and I, I can't wait to see not only how it affects storage and compute and other things, but will it eventually start pulling in other things as well to kind of interconnect those together? And could we see kind of a more standardized version of maybe using, I don't know, like CXL as the interconnect links between switches as opposed to having to rely on some of the stuff we've been using so far, which ain't exactly the best. Time will tell. And I hope that we have a, a good outcome for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's important to think about uh, what does this change in architecture do, not just for servers, but for everything that you find in the data center. So imagine you know, switches where line cards are external to the switch or are in their own chassis, or maybe, you know, an architecture where all the top of rack are actually um, logically part of one switch that spans the entire rack, that kind of thing. And then think of what it can do for storage as well in terms of having, uh, you know, multi-chassis storage devices. Think of how it affects uh, disaggregated and HCI, you know, HCI and disaggregated uh, collide with each other. There's a lot of exciting things that you can do with CXL, and, and I'm pretty excited to see where it goes as well. So Tom, uh, we've got a few events coming up this week, and I'm gonna kick it off by mentioning that uh, I will be at VMware Explore uh, August 29th through 31st, and uh, we're gonna have a couple of Tech Field Day sessions there on the Monday morning. Uh, we're also very excited to be joining our friends uh, for the VM Underground party. Uh, we'll definitely be swinging by V Brown Bag for some excellent learning. And of course, the CTO Advisor Road Trip will be on the floor at VMware Explore. Uh, I think you've got something coming up too. 
That's right, Stephen. The week after that, um, it's Labor Day here in the U.S., but the, the real labor of love for me is Networking Field Day. We're going to be back with our latest edition of that event. We've got a very packed schedule. We have a lot of great presentations headed your way. If you check out techfieldday.com, you can learn a little bit more about who's going to be there, both delegates and presenters. Um, we're going to have a, a great coverage starting on September the 7th, the Wednesday, going all the way through the rest of the week. So make sure you check the website for the schedule and uh, tune in for your favorite sessions. Or you know what? Just tune in for all of them because you don't want to miss any of that. Speaking of which, you don't want to miss any of the news that we bring you each and every week here on the Gestalt IT Rundown. We're, uh, we, got, we come out every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern Time. So make sure you're subscribed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video so you don't miss the episode. Um, if you do like it, you know, make sure you hit the thumbs up button and uh, maybe send it to a friend and say, hey, I really like this part where uh, Stephen talked about storage and Tom made fun of him. Uh, but more importantly, if you want to listen to this as a podcast, make sure you leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform, because people do read those to figure out what we're all about, which is all about enterprise IT. And uh, we would love to hear your thoughts as well. Uh, we should be back next week with more great news stories. If you have one that you'd like to see covered here, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown. Uh, we'll check it out, add it to our list, and uh, we'll give you a shout out if we use it. For now, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and for all of our wonderful listeners out there, we thank you very much. We look forward to our next opportunity to get in front of you with more great content. But until then, take care and we'll see you soon.